Our Father God, we thank you so much for this chance to look at your word as we think carefully about your world, uh, what you're doing in this world and how you would live us, have us live in this world. Uh, please help us to humbly understand and accept your word uh, and apply it to our lives. We pray for your glory. Amen. Uh, what do you say when people ask you what you do? As a, as a student of the college, as a lecturer at the college, what, what's your response? Do you have a way of kind of quickly explaining what it means uh, to be a student here or to teach here? Uh, do you feel the need to justify and explain what you're doing? And is your explanation maybe just a little bit sanitised? Uh, do you present it in a way that's as palatable as possible? Uh, we can present Christian ministry in a moderately respectable way sometimes, can't we? I guess it depends on who you're talking to. But also, what kind of feelings come up when people are asking you what you do and you're trying to explain that? Uh, do you sometimes feel a hint of shame? I'm sure there's a variety of feelings that come about uh, by being so kind of officially associated with Jesus. Uh, this week, as we think about the theme of cross-shaped mission, uh, we're not spending much time thinking about the why of mission, as I've already said. We're going to be spending more time thinking about the how of mission, uh, the idea that mission is cross-shaped. Uh, the work of Jesus on the cross is both the message of mission and the paradigm of how we go about mission. Uh, and so let's jump into uh, Mark's gospel here as we seek to understand this, uh, how the cross shapes our lives and therefore mission. Uh, here we are at the pivot moment uh, in the, the book of Mark. Um, so, so French word of the day is charnière, charnière. Everyone said together, it means hinge, literally the hinge on a door. Uh, so the f literal meaning is a hinge. The figurative meaning is this is the hinge point in the book of Mark, isn't it? Because up until this point, we've been asking the question, who is this man, Jesus? Uh, and this is the hinge where we turn to the second part, where we ask the question, after Peter's identification of Jesus as the Messiah, we ask the question now, what's the Messiah going to do? Why has the Messiah come? Uh, and the gospel has been so well crafted, hasn't it, that you can just picture the scene, that they're, they're walking down the road, uh, Jesus with his disciples, and he brings up that question, who do people say that I am? And they answer him. Uh, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Uh, those are the different options according to the crowds, the people out there. But the people who know Jesus the best, what do the disciples think? But who, what about you? Who do you say I am? Uh, the crowds have their notions, but the disciples, have they fully understood? Have they learnt from the, the calming of the storm? Have they, have they seen the healing and the miracles that Jesus has been doing? Have they learnt from the bread? Do they have ears to hear? Do they have eyes to see who Jesus really is? He asks them. At least one of them has put the pieces together, hasn't he? In classic, bold Peter fashion, uh, he dares to speak up and say the almost unthinkable, you are the Messiah. Jesus has opened the eyes of the physically blind. He's given physical sight to the physical blind, but he's also opened the eyes of the spiritually blind. Peter is able to see Jesus for who he really is. You are the Messiah. And what's 
What's going on in Peter's head as he says this? Uh, what picture does he have of the Messiah? Uh, surely he has in mind all sorts of expectations from God's word to his people. Uh, this is the promised king, the Lord's anointed one, the son of God, the inheritor of the eternal throne, the offspring of David. I mean, it's a little bit surprising that God is raising up this carpenter from Nazareth, but it's about to get even more surprising because Jesus moves immediately to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This is not just surprising, it's a little bit much for Peter to handle. Peter's king, you see, the Lord's anointed, is going to be mistreated and killed? After all these years of anticipation, the Messiah is going to come and be defeated? How can God's plans and promises be thwarted like that? So Peter rebukes Jesus. They're walking along, talking together, and, and Peter has identified Jesus as the Messiah, and Jesus starts to prepare them for what's going to happen to the Messiah, uh, teaching the group of disciples, and, but Peter, he, he can't handle this. But he doesn't want to shame Jesus in front of the others either. So he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus for speaking about the Lord's anointed in this way. What must Peter have in his mind? Maybe he's thinking about Psalm 2, the Lord's anointed ruling as king of kings. Maybe he's thinking about 2 Samuel 7 and the descendant of David having an eternal throne. Maybe he's thinking about the teaching that Jesus himself brought about being the fulfilment of Isaiah chapter 9. Or maybe he's even thinking about David, how despite the fact that Saul kept trying to kill David, when David has the opportunity to do harm to Saul, he refrains from doing so because he would not touch the Lord's anointed. Who could possibly come against the Lord's anointed, God's Messiah? Whatever Peter has in mind, it's inconceivable for him to think that the Messiah should suffer and die. So Peter rebukes Jesus. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Does then Jesus' response feel a little bit harsh? I don't know if you felt that as we were reading through. Uh, Peter's taken him aside to defend the Lord's anointed, but then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter hasn't yet learned that the way of the Messiah is the way of the cross. He doesn't yet get the cross-shaped ministry of Jesus. And this is society's current paradigm, isn't it? It's the pleasure-pain paradigm. Uh, if you're going to min-max your life, you minimise pain and suffering, you maximise pleasure. That's what human concerns are. How can I avoid pain and suffering in my life? How can I maximise pleasure, joy, self-actualisation, human flourishing? How can I live my best life now? It's interesting that he calls him Satan too, right? It seems a bit harsh, but actually... There is a temptation there for Jesus, isn't there? There's a temptation that, that Jesus could be the kind of Messiah who avoids suffering. 
He could be the kind of king who comes in domineering and conquering. He certainly has the power to do that, doesn't he? Uh, Satan has already shown Jesus that pathway. He's already offered him that. And just because Jesus has resisted that temptation one time doesn't mean that that temptation is gone. And now one of Jesus' own disciples, one of his closest friends, is offering Jesus that path as well. It's a path that makes sense, humanly speaking. Avoid suffering, embrace glory. It makes sense, humanly speaking, that Jesus, with such power and ability, would come not to be served. Uh, Sorry, it doesn't make sense, humanly speaking, that Jesus would come, given his power and ability, uh, not to be served, but to, uh, not to serve, but be served and give his life as a ransom for many. But Jesus doesn't have human concerns. He has in mind God's concerns. And he takes this as a teaching moment, doesn't he? He calls the crowd along to him with his disciples. So he's no longer just speaking to Peter or his disciples, but he's actually turned to the crowd now. And he says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus is no longer just speaking to the disciples, but he's speaking to the crowd as well. And he says, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you must deny yourself Take up your cross and follow him. The path of following Jesus is cross-shaped. The Messiah is not here to dominate or lord it over people or to be served. He's here heading to the cross. The cross shapes his life and ministry. And Jesus requires his followers to do the same because this is what true love looks like laying down your life in sacrificial service. It's the path he himself is taking. And we follow our Lord who lived a cross-shaped life. It's hard to not have a pretty sanitised view of the cross these days, isn't it? I mean, we talk about the cross all the time. Uh, We wear symbols around our necks. We see the cross in our churches. Um, But we're not filled with the the visceral, the the gut reaction of, of shame and horror as we look at the cross anymore, are we? But how must this call have sounded of cross-shaped living to the disciples and to the crowd? If you want to follow me, you must no longer live for yourself. You must give up your self-centred desires and inclinations, take up your instrument of torture and shameful death and follow me. How utterly shameful. What good is Jesus being the anointed King of God if he's going to bring shame, disgrace, and suffering? And how many people turned away from Jesus on that day because the demand was too great? Oh, I like Jesus as a moral teacher. He's very interesting. He's very insightful. I like the, the virtues he has, but giving him your whole life and the cross, come on. But we see in verse 38 that Jesus' call is this. Take on the shame of the cross, because if you're ashamed to associate with me in my cross-shaped life, 
I will be ashamed of you, and you will have no share in my Father's glory in the new creation. Either we take on the shame of the cross, or we face being ashamed of by Jesus. It's a good thing that that call was just to those disciples and that crowd on that day only and has no bearing on us, right? We can, we can still be comfortable Christians, right? I think one of Sydney's biggest temptations is comfort and material wealth. We are so soaked in material wealth that we can hardly see it anymore. Uh, maybe you don't notice it so much as a college student, fair enough. Uh, but when you leave college, the temptation to let your comfort get in the way of losing your life for Jesus and his gospel, that temptation's not going away. It's only going to get stronger and stronger. More broadly in Australia, I think, um, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just back in Australia, but my impression is this, that in Australia we think, you know, Australia, we're, we're a bit of a battler on the world stage. Uh, we do all right, but we're not like those other wealthy countries. But there are not more wealthy places than Australia. Uh, we lived for nine years in France, a wealthy Western country, and we come back here and we're surprised by just how affluent Sydney is, let alone our missionaries who come back from other places other than France. Now, I'm not saying all of this to kind of just push the guilty button. There's, there's not much good in doing that. But we need to very seriously confront the ways in which our material wealth is a blind spot, it's a temptation, and for some of us, it's an idol. Is our comfort getting in the way of losing our life for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel? What's it going to mean if we're going to take Jesus' call to deny ourselves and take up our cross seriously? It's going to mean taking some pretty drastic decisions, isn't it? Now, this week, uh, especially over lunches, I hope, you're going to hear about all sorts of different opportunities for what it might look like for you to deny yourself, take up your cross, as you hear about different mission opportunities. Um, for some of us, that's not going to be a viable option. Maybe there are family reasons or other concerns that means that we don't take up those opportunities. But we mustn't let comfort and an unwillingness to live a cross-shaped life be the things that mean that we say no to those options. On the flip side, it also doesn't mean that if we say no to cross-cultural mission, then we aren't living a cross-shaped life. We need to be careful because the temptation to living with human concerns is a strong temptation and it's especially strong for us here in the area of material wealth and comfort. So what does it look like to live a cross-shaped life? Uh, it probably looks a little bit like what my dad did. Uh, in the 1980s, my parents were, were heading towards mission and one of the things that they did before they headed towards mission was to buy a house in Newcastle before they went. Um, even though they, they didn't live in that house, uh, it was kind of their home base as they went to various places in the world. The plan was to, to retire there. It was the, their place that they looked forward to across their 25 years of missionary service. They looked forward to settling back into Australia, going to that house and, and having their retirement there. Uh, so off they went after buying that house, off they went to Bangladesh, uh, that's where I spent most of primary school. Then they went to Thailand, that's where I spent most of high school. 
Uh, and then before we went to France, uh, about 10 years ago, they went to a new location uh, because Bangladesh and Thailand weren't enough. They went to East Asia to learn another language again. While they were living in East Asia, my dad was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. He moved back to Australia and started treatment. Uh, just after we'd moved to the city where we were living in France, um, it was time for me to come back and see him. Uh, he was getting treatment in Sydney at a hospital and then decided to stop following that treatment, moved up to Newcastle to that house that they had bought, the place where they wanted to retire and live out their later days. And a week after moving up there, he passed away. He didn't get his retirement. He didn't get to live that retirement joy with my mum. He didn't get to live in that house that he'd looked forward to, going out the back and wood turning in the garage. But you know what? He also didn't regret it. You see, what his concern was in the last hours of his life was that he was praying about my mum's sister who doesn't know Jesus. He was praying that she would come to know Jesus. And my dad died around the same time I found out that a dear friend had given up on the gospel. My dad had lost his life for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. But his life is saved. He is safely with Jesus. But my friend who's given up on the gospel, he hasn't lost his physical life, but he's lost his soul. And what for? What good is it? for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul. That's what a cross-shaped life looks like. Um, at CMS, uh, our, our thing that we're on about, our what, is a world that knows Jesus. We've got a slide here. Maybe you've seen that before. Uh, that's the what of mission. We want so many people in the world to know Jesus. That's, that's what we're on about. But we've also got some values that kind of talk about who we want to be, how we want to go about this mission, who we want to be as a mission society. So we've got these four. Uh, we've got gospel priority, cross-shaped, long-term, and in partnership. And I better not get started, because if you get me started talking about each of them, we'll be here for a while. Uh, but let's focus in on cross-shaped. Uh, this is what we mean by cross-shaped as a value for CMS. Uh, the cross is both the message we proclaim and the life we live. Therefore, we serve in the power of the Holy Spirit, humbly laying down our lives in weakness, vulnerability, and dependent prayer for the sake of others and God's glory. You see, in the face of the temptation to live by human concerns, the answer is not to try harder. Resist that temptation harder in your own strength. How is it that Jesus resisted the temptation? In the power of the Spirit, trusting the Father's word, Jesus humbly and freely lays down his life for the sake of others and for the sake of the Father's glory. Jesus set the example of love that we follow. This is Mission Awareness Week. One of the things that we're trying to think through is if cross-cultural mission is the way that we want to serve our Lord Jesus. But before we think about any of those specific details of where and what, all of the different types of things that we could do, we need to get this right. If we have understood our Lord rightly, we are going to, in the power of the Spirit, say no to human concerns, swapping them for the Father's concerns, 
We're going to deny ourselves. We're going to take up our cross with two hands. We're going to lose our life for our Lord and for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray that God would enable us to do that. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that your plan was for him to come and to serve us by taking up the cross, living a life of obedience to you, trusting your word, saying no to Satan, saying no to the temptations of human concerns, and in the power of your spirit, dying in our place. Father, we also want to be men and women who deny ourselves, take up our cross, say no to human concerns and live in the power of your spirit for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of your glory, not ours. Please make us people who do this, not in our own strength, but relying completely on you. And please may we use this week as an opportunity to think this through, encourage one another, challenge one another, that we might do all things for the glory of your name. Amen.